Were you ever uh, scared or at risk of not not making it? Was there a time where you I'm thought scared that every day? I'm still scared now. I mean, not like scared, panicking, but I mean, I'm always fearful. Yeah, because of what? never done. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, how an anarchist pursuing the life of his dreams partnered with a friend, eschewed traditional management practices, and created a $70 million deli empire with a social conscious. Before we get going, I just once again want to thank you, the listeners. Without you listening, this show wouldn't exist. So uh, thank you so much for your continued support. And if you have any questions or comments, please, let's open up the dialogue. And you can send any thoughts or ideas to podcast at wildstory.com. I receive all those and will respond to each and every one. So please go ahead and let me know what you think or if you have any guest ideas. And now, on to today's show. If you've ever been to Ann Arbor, Michigan, for any reason, to attend the University of Michigan like I did, if you're there to visit on business, or you're visiting family, undoubtedly, when you ask for suggestions on must-dos while in town, someone will point you to Zingerman's Deli. It's where you take your business meeting to impress them, or take your parents when they are visiting you at school to show them how cool Ann Arbor is. The Zingerman's brand carries cachet and meaning. And when you walk into any of the Zingerman's businesses, you instantly can feel that they are different. From their hand-sketched signage to the warm smiles from the employees behind the counter, it's clear that Zingerman's is a feeling. It's a coveted gift in our family to receive one of Zingerman's specialty mail-order products, and oftentimes, I'll bestow a Zingerman's Bacon of the Month Club on friends for a wedding gift. Zingerman's started as a deli and has grown into what they now call Zingerman's Community of Business, which is on track to do $70 million in revenue in 2019. Harry Weinsweg, well, he looks like a rock star. A touch of Keith Richards, rock and roll hair, earring, black jeans, black t-shirt rolled up the sleeves. Pretty cool. And Ari's philosophy and the Zingerman's way is to embrace collective decision-making over corporate hierarchy. His approach to business is so admired and sought after that he has been featured in The Atlantic and The New York Times. He teaches classes at the University of Michigan Business School and has built a training business called ZingTrain that outperforms the restaurant revenue by a large margin. Currently, he's authored seven books on business and eating, and these are not your little itty-bitty books. You definitely get your money's worth. Ari is a doer. While he's talking high concepts that reside in the clouds, he's also got his hands in the dirt. On any given evening, you can find Ari bussing tables and refilling waters at Zingerman's Roadhouse. This was a particularly fun episode to record, as I did it while I was in town for my annual visit to Ann Arbor for a football game. We did this one live at Zingerman's Coffee Company, and it was great to sit with Ari on game day weekend. What you're about to hear is a whining conversation that is representative of how Ari thinks. We bounce from Russian anarchy, beliefs and belief cycles, deli sandwiches, creating free and healthy communities in order to drive higher performance and profits, and so much more. Can you just tell me your name and uh, your role here and where we're at right now? 
Well, let's go in reverse. We're at Zingerman's Coffee Company on Plaza Drive in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, my role, co-founding partner, that's my title, or CEO, but whatever. My name, Ari Weinzweig. You want me to spell it? Please. A-R-I, last name W-E-I-N-Z, W-E-I-G. I'm sure everyone's going to ask right away, Ari Weinzweig is not Ari Zingerman. No, so, a lot of people think it is. That's right. So, so tell me a little bit about that. About the name. Well, Paul's last name, my partner's Paul's last name is Saginaw, which was Sagin Or in Russia, which means seer of light in ancient Hebrew, but was changed at Ellis Island, as so many immigrant families' names were in that era, to Saginaw, because it sounded like Sagin Or, and Saginaw in Michigan is a mid-sized industrial town and or a Native American tribe. Nothing wrong with either of those, but they don't immediately evoke images of corned beef, which is what we were going to be selling. So we sat on the floor at uh, Paul's house and we brainstormed names and we wanted an A or a Z and we, to be at the beginning or the end of the alphabet, which no longer matters because on Google they all come up just as fast, but in those days it mattered. Yeah, why, why did it matter just for people that are listening? Oh, for people who are not old enough to know why it mattered. Because on Google, L comes up just as fast as A or Z. But when you're looking at a printed list that's listed alphabetically, you will more quickly find the A or the Z. Yeah, yeah. There was this thing that used to be called the phone book and things people would, you know, shuffle yeah, through this there. This is more like the idea of like print ads of like, here's all the businesses that are supporting this cause or whatever, you know. But yeah. So that was the big strategy, uh, the big marketing strategy for Zingerman's at the time was to be at the front or the back? Well, it was just if you're going to pick a name, why not pick one that did that? Yeah. Well, it seemed to have served you very well, but yeah. I would love to get into a little bit of, of how you and Paul came up with the idea for the deli. But first, this show is all about where you came from, your backstory, and, and how you came about. And so, you know, I guess my question for you is, you know, was, was eight-year-old Ari, was, you know, what was that like? Were you into food? Were you into pastrami at eight years old? Not into food, not into business, probably very nervous. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was three, remarried each to, to somebody else when I was seven. So, you know, going through all of that, I don't know, at eight, I was in whatever you're in, third grade. And just, can you set the stage for us? Like, where did you grow up? What was that like? I can absolutely set the stage. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, south side, north side, and then Skokie, and I went to Niles North for high school, which is not a big claim to fame. Uh, I came to Ann Arbor to go to U of M, which is, if you're not from here or not an alum, is University of Michigan, not University of Minnesota. And I studied Russian history with a particular focus on the anarchists. And as you know, and we'll probably get to it, we do a lot of work here around visioning. But when I graduated, I had zero vision of what I wanted to do. I only knew what I didn't want to do, which was I didn't want to move back home. And in order to facilitate that financially, I needed a job. And I had driven a cab part-time, but it wasn't a whole lot. Of, it wasn't like terrible, but it wasn't that much fun. Uh, one of my roommates was waiting tables at a restaurant in downtown Ann Arbor, which downtown Ann Arbor is only 10 minutes from the edge of Ann Arbor. So it's not that far away. But anyway, uh, I went in there trying to get a job as a server. They said they'd call me. I waited two weeks. They hadn't called me. I went back and reapplied as a busser. They said they'd call me. I waited like another whatever two weeks. They still didn't call me, and I went back and offered to do anything, and they hired me as a dishwasher. So 
that's how I got started. Uh, I had zero intent of going into business. I had zero interest in food other than I ate. I just got lucky. I don't mean all of what Zingerman's is is luck, but I got lucky in that I fell into a line of work that I came to really love. And also I met great people. So Paul Saginaw, who I mentioned a minute ago, my partner, was the general manager at that restaurant. Uh, Frank Carollo, who's one of the partners in our bakery, which is whatever, 100 feet up the walk here, was a line cook. And Maggie Bayless from Zing Train, our training business, which is 50 feet to the west, uh, was a cocktail waitress. So there we all were. Who would have known that 40 years later, we still like each other and we're still working together? Well, and that's something I definitely want to talk to you in a little bit later because that's like something that's really fascinating to me. I, I feel that like most partnerships don't have that sort of trajectory in health. And yeah. so, you know, I'd like it's to talk. Yeah. yeah, it's not easy to do. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and that's what I've seen. It's like most most have a, a real uh, limited shelf life, if, yeah. if you which, will. Which isn't necessarily bad. I mean, it's it's not like you're... It's even like marriage. I mean, you know, it's people's assumption is it's supposed to be forever, but the data is one out of two ends in divorce. And of the ones that stay together, a large chunk are not really that well connected or communicating that well. So it's really the norm not to stay together, but <laughs> the social norm is that you're supposed to. So I think in business, you know, much the same. I, I think what's important is that everybody's pursuing the life of their dreams in a, in a respectful way that's aligned with their values and beliefs and if you can do that together for a long really long time is great and if you can part ways on good terms that's not so bad either necessarily i mean you know but yeah 36 years almost 37 since we opened the deli yeah so let's talk about that i mean since we're talking about it now i mean i'm just so fascinated that 36 37 years you and paul i mean um, I'm sure it wasn't, it's not all, uh, there, there's been disagreements. Never that, had a fight. Uh, <laughs> no, we disagree about a ton of things. Uh, our personalities are really different. You know, it's just learning to work together in respectful ways, even when you're really frustrated with the other person. And I, you know, I know I've done stuff that's pissed him off and, you know, whatever. I mean, that's like any relationship. I mean, it's, it's always going to happen it's more how you handle it when it does happen you know having a shared vision we got lucky in the beginning that we in hindsight because we didn't know anything about visioning but we had one in our heads which was pretty shared but then i think this is what happens to a lot of people is as they fulfill that original vision then they don't know they fulfilled it they keep working but they have no vision so if they don't know where they're going they start arguing at every intersection of whether they should turn right or left because there's no ultimate destination, so it's hard to chart your course. But if you actually have agreement on where you're going uh, and you both feel good about it, then I, I think it's much easier to navigate, you know, the short-term struggles. Yeah, and if I'm hearing you uh, correctly also, is as you're going towards that long-term vision, those little detours on the way, you get less sideways about them yeah. because you know that ultimately each person can take their little yeah. detour or have a say, but you're ultimately going to the same place. Absolutely. And so would you attribute this idea of the vision that that's really the, the, the main thing that's been the success no, of your partnership? The main thing. I think there's never one main thing. I mean, I, I, maybe we'll get to anarchism later, but I have tried to teach myself not to think hierarchically, even though most of the country has been raised to think hierarchically so much so we don't even know that we're doing it. Uh, but I think there is no one thing. I, I think it's always multiple things and... I think we've been trained socially that we're supposed to find the most important thing, but 
you know, it's 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 a lot. I think it's a lot of things happening. So I, I've really come to look at organizations much more like ecosystems in nature, and things that seem small sometimes have huge impact, like bees. Uh, and so, you know, it's yes, the vision is huge. Shared values huge in the context of the most recent book on beliefs. I see now that shared beliefs can be really important or cause big problems when they're not shared. Uh, just learning how to communicate, you know, constructively is huge. Uh, we sort of informally and then more formally early on agreed just to keep coming back to the table so we could figure stuff out. And that alone, like if you look at it, conflict around the world, that doesn't happen. So, I mean, something as simple as that. Uh, Paul has a little saying, I don't know where he got it, but, you know, learning how to disagree without being disagreeable. Uh you know, which is helpful. Uh, being surrounded by other good people is helpful. You know, being willing to acknowledge the other person's dreams and priorities matter. Understanding that none of us are going to get it all the way we want. <laughs> you know, but that we choose the partnership and that we choose the problems and the positives that go with it. And I think all of those things are contributing. A lot of people don't feel like they made a choice. If you don't make a free choice, then you feel forced. When you feel forced, it sucks. And then people start getting reactive and a lot of bad things happen. So th this sounds all amazing. And I, I'm looking at you and I'm nodding, but like, has it always been this way for you? Have you always had this strong you know, view and beliefs and, and no, agreeing to disagree? it for my whole life. Well, some of it is totally the opposite of how I grew up. So it's, it's all learned behavior. It's just a lot of things we learn when we're little, so we think it comes naturally. But I would suggest it doesn't come naturally. It's just if, if your family did it this way for your first 10 years of your life, then that's how you learn how to function. You know? So, uh, but no, I mean, I come from a you know, family that generally showed love and affection by telling you what you did wrong and by arguing over each other and that you know, you knew somebody was listening to you if they cut you off, right? But in general, it seems like I've been learning over the last 30 years, most of the world doesn't work that way. And so it's, you know, learning how to be a better listener imperfectly, learning to shut up, even though I have strong feelings, whatever. You know. Being an active listener is hard, even even as I'm sitting here in the podcast a lot of times listening. It's, re it's really hard to listen. Yeah, it's to. work. I mean, and, and it's a skill, you know. And, and so I, I think if, if somebody grew up in a family where they were really good listeners, it's not that hard. It's work, but it's not that hard because they know how to do it in the same way that, you know, if you grew up and everybody in your family played violin, you probably did too. And it doesn't seem that weird. Like, of course, this is how you hold the bow. Of course, this is how you... Like, no one in my family played an instrument. So I love listening to music, but I have zero ability to create it. Now, if I worked at it for 10 years, I'd, I don't think I'd be great, but I'd be okay. So I think it's just work. And I, in a good way, it's, if we decide to embrace that skill and to take on the challenge of learning it, we'll get better. And you mentioned you open up the conversation for beliefs and your book on beliefs. Yeah. I mean, how do beliefs come into play and what's just your general philosophy on, on well, beliefs in business? So uh, it sounds weird because I've been, at least to me, because I've been writing about business and teaching business and studying all of this for decades. But I really never thought much about the role of beliefs uh, until whatever, four years ago, five years ago when I started working on that book. Uh, so when I talk about beliefs, I'm not talking about religion, sports, or politics, which are also beliefs. 
Those are the three categories everybody likes to talk about, uh, although no one ever changes their mind either. But uh, like nobody ever goes, oh, yeah, I don't want to be a Packer fan. You're right. I'm going to be a Bears fan. Like nobody ever says. <laughs> but anyway, I was reading Bob and Judith Wright's book, Transformed. Uh, he's the guy who wrote the foreword for part three of the book, which is uh, that one's on managing ourselves. And in their book, they cited a little self-fulfilling belief cycle which kind of blew my mind and Bob can't remember who taught it to him. So I don't even know who to give the original credit to, but I learned it from him. So I, I give him credit, but uh, it kind of blew my mind because basically what it shows is that all of us have beliefs about like everything about podcasts, about business, about people, about proper dress, you know, like what you and I are wearing right now, 50 years ago, we would not be having a business conversation dressed like we are. We would be equally smart, we would be equally caring, but we would not show up. And that's all beliefs. It's not ethics, it's not anything other than beliefs. So uh, based on what each of us believes, we take action. Uh, the fact that I'm sitting here with you today is based on my beliefs and vice versa. Uh, the fact that we're drinking this coffee, it actually is, tastes good, uh, is, is based on beliefs, etc. Based on our actions, people around us form their own beliefs. Uh, based on their beliefs, they take action, and this self-fulfilling cycle shows that about 95% of the time, their action will reinforce our original belief. So whether people know it or not, I certainly didn't, but whether we know it or not, that's what's happening. I mean, simple examples that I use pretty regularly, but if you work in an organization where the CEO or the owner or whatever doesn't believe in training, what action will they then take? Training. No training. What will the people who work there then start to believe about the company's belief in them and their future? They don't believe in them. There is no future. So when they don't believe in them and there's no future, they do lousy work. And the CEO goes, thank God we didn't waste any money on training. Look how incompetent this, you know, our staff is. If the CEO or the owner flips their belief and they start to believe what we believe, and I'm sure you believe, which is training and education and learning are fabulously important. We do tons of it. So we teach finance classes to the staff. We teach visioning classes, customer service classes, food classes, wine classes. I think we have, by last somebody's count a couple of months ago, 75 internal classes. That doesn't even count the food ones. So if you work here, you start to go like, wow, this is, I just came here to get a job for a few months, but like, this is actually cool and I'm learning stuff and I get involved. And then what kind of work do they do? Really good work. And we go, man, this training's fabulous. We should invest even more money in it. And the irony is it's exactly the same workforce in both scenarios. All that's different is the belief of the leader. And this kind of stuff's going on all day long. So that cycle is huge. Uh, two other points, and then I'll pause for you to ask. So. One thing I learned in this work is that I didn't certainly didn't make it up. Other people know it, but is that uh, we all filter information based on what we believe. All information that does not support what we already believe, we filter out and dismiss as an aberration, incorrect, fake news. Information that supports what we believe, we embrace, seek out, actually look for it, right? So the old saying, I'll believe it when I see it, actually turns out to be a hundred degree and 80 degrees wrong it's the other way you'll see it once you believe it when you change what you believe you see totally different things what you believe is leading to the way you experience information and everything yeah i mean for me that's that's a bit of a mind blower and i'm sitting here a little it bit is. silent thinking yeah. about that well i'll give you two really simple examples that i use when i teach from my own life so 
uh, I had a corgi dog for 17 years who I loved, Jelly Bean, and she passed away three and a half years ago, which totally sucks. But anyway, the following fall, my girlfriend got us another corgi puppy who we named Bean Sprout from Jelly Bean. And Sprout is a very good dog, but, and she's, you know, very loving and she's very cute. And anyway, one day my girlfriend Tammy takes the broom out of the closet to sweep and Sprout goes ballistic. And, you know, I try logic, like, Sprout, it's just a broom, don't worry, you know, but of course that didn't help. But because I was working on this belief stuff, like, see, you and I see Tammy with a broom, it's like, what's the big deal? But if you're a little corgi puppy, what you actually see is this really long, scary thing got hold of your owner. It's got big bristles on the end, and no matter how she moves, it won't let go of her. So that's an incredible, like, uh, example of empathy and putting yourself... (laughs) She has... What's the job of a puppy? Rescue your owner from danger. So Tammy's going like this back and forth. The broom keeps going with her. She can't get it. You know, so you and I go, she's holding on to it. The dog goes, the broom's holding on to her. Okay, here's another really simple one. I run every day. We live up on a little hill. So I often will go down to the road to stretch. And so I'm like, you know, leaning on the garbage cans out front with my iPhone, checking my email, stretching my, you know, whatever, uh, you know, and I do it every day. I run every day. I stretch down there often. Anyways, like a week later, this customer goes, yeah, man, I, I saw you after you were running. You looked like you were going to pass out. I almost pulled over and I'm like thinking, what are you talking about? And I'm like, oh no, I hadn't even started running. <laughs> but because that's what they were thinking that's their belief. Then they see me as like, I'm barely, gra- I'm gasping for breath, clutching to the garbage can so I don't fall on my face on the road. Whereas actually I'm fine and I haven't even started yet and I'm checking email on my phone. So when you change what you believe, you start to see things very differently. And in the current events on a serious scale, uh, this is why half the country reads the exact same story or hears the same story you and I hear and they end up 180 degree opposite conclusions of the other half of the country. They're not even arguing over what happened. They just arrive at totally opposite conclusions. Why? Because they hear this and they filter it based on their existing beliefs. Right. So anyway, so that's huge. Uh, and, and then realizing that beliefs are, gen- are not genetic, they're all learned. So if you know it's a self-fulfilling cycle and you know that the beliefs are leading to the outcomes and you know you don't have to hold your beliefs, you could change them. Or just self-fulfill the cycle. Well, if you like the outcome, it's fine. But if you don't like the outcome, then the, the, the place to focus is not on the outcome. It's on where you what you believe. Because if you change what you believe, it's highly likely you're going to change the outcome. In addition to training how does how do these beliefs show up in our in our work life if you have a manager who doesn't believe who believes the employee the trainee is going to fail or if if you have here if you have two employees really simple uh billy believes alice is a jerk how will he treat her like a jerk like a jerk what will alice now start to believe about billy that he treats her like a jerk and yeah how will she treat him like Like a jerk and he goes it's even worse than i imagined if he makes up a different story and he basically changes his belief and he goes, maybe she's just overwhelmed. It's kind of intimidating coming in here. You know, she's probably nervous and anxious and she doesn't really know how to interact well with us and she's holding back. So then what might he do? 
he might go say, hey, Alice, how are you? Let me introduce myself. It's a little intimidating coming in here. Here's my email. Here's my phone number. If I can be a help, let me know. Now what does she believe? He's a really nice, kind guy. How does she treat him? She's nice to him. And he goes, look, she's nice. So what, what plays out is basically if the employee doesn't believe in the work they're doing, it's not going to be good work. If the manager doesn't believe the employee can get to greatness, they're not. Uh, if if you if we take if we agree to work on a project but we don't believe in it, we won't do great work. I mean, it's just it's it's playing out all day long. It's like again, like my mind's just yeah. spinning. But it like, turned into a six hundred page book, so it blew my mind too. <laughs> <laughs> when we talk about these beliefs, like if, if we are stuck in a cycle, if we are having a negative pattern, how do how do you? break those so uh the first thing is you need to know that it, that this issue even exists which i would say most of the world doesn't even realize that they have beliefs right the next thing there's actually a recipe in the book for how to change a belief uh so it's it's you're starting by looking at what's the frustration so if you i don't know you've hired seven managers and they're not they all don't work out like it could be them <laughs> maybe <laughs> That's good for the first one or the second one, but then after a while, then we—it's probably a good idea. So you, so you first see what's what's bothering you, then you see what your belief is, then you check the equation. Like you might decide you want to keep holding your belief because it's more important to you than the the benefit of changing the belief. But if you decide you want to change it, then basically you're going to adopt your you're going to do a little homework. Where did you get the belief, right? So. Couple people came to a Zing Train seminar, doing they've got a great business, but they're growing. We're doing this work. Uh, there's a little exercise in the book that helps people get at what they believe. It's super simple. It's called This I Believe. Uh, I, you know, have people do it, and I ask for anybody have any surprises or realizations. Woman shoots her hand up. She says, "Yeah, I just realized that I believe leaders are born, not made." And now I realize why I can't get any good managers because we aren't doing any training for them. We just keep trying to hire the one that already knows how to do it. That, that's a great, perfect so, example. You check the equation, then you make a decision. Do I want to change my belief? Because it is a decision. If you decide to change it, you need to know that it's going to take work because it's like getting in shape. I mean, you have a lifetime of the other belief. It's not just going to go, you know, it's not like a shirt that you just go in the closet and put a new one in. So... It could be a year, six months, two years of work, and there's a bunch of techniques in there for how to help you get through those. That's, that's, again, like my head's spinning, and I'm going to go back and, and dig into the book, but let's go back to those uh, Russian anarchist days yeah. at the University of Michigan. So you, back well, 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 we'll come full circle, but you, you're, so you're studying Russian anarchist. How do you even get into that? Like, How does that even like appeal to well, you? I'm studying a, Russian history already, uh, and so I, in there... There's anarchists, uh, and then uh, Michigan has the largest anarchist collection in the country. It's on the seventh floor, now also the eighth floor of the Graduate Library. It's called the Labadee Collection, named after Joe, J-O, Labadee, uh, who was known as the peaceful anarchist, who was from Pawpaw, Michigan, but later moved and lived as an adult in Detroit. And in 1911, while he was still alive, he donated his collection to the university. Uh, which stayed in boxes for like 20 years until this woman, Agnes Inglis, found it and made it her life's work to catalog it and put it out. And today it's like literally this amazing collection. So I don't know, I started going up there. I mean, I was looking for something and it's like in the rare book room and, you, you know, and I loved it. I mean, just like to me, you know, you deal with stories. So 
history is gender biased, but it's just story, his story. Uh, so I'm fascinated by the stories of what happened, and I've always been fascinated. Like, I love oral history. This is what you're working on. So I, I love oral history because it's not the, you know, seem the, the fallaciously created bold strokes of genius, which wasn't genius and weren't that bold most of the time. <laughs> but it's the story of real people. So it's the story of that guy sitting over there, you know, who I don't even know. But, like, who is he? And, like, how did he get here? And he's got as interesting a story as anybody, you know, once you get it out. So I, I just really liked it. And then I also was drawn to a lot of the beliefs. Because they were things that I was drawn to, because they were things I was already struggling with. So, probably like every 19-year-old, but you know how to be yourself, how to resist social pressure to conform. Uh, you know, just all of that stuff about freedom and free thinking and creativity and all the stuff that I wanted. And then all these cool people were writing about it, and I like that, right? So that's why I studied it. Yeah, I think most people don't even understand anarchy. I mean, I think it has like this yeah, this weird, very yeah, very, very negative connotation. Which are beliefs which are inaccurate. Uh, so it has nothing to do with chaos. Uh, it, it is the, the, the most standard thing is getting rid of government, which is not my issue. I don't think government is the problem. The pro we've internalized what we don't, what people don't like about government. They've internalized. Uh, so it's, it's more about us as individuals. But for me, it's about free thinking. It's about treating everybody like an intelligent, creative human being. It's respect for everybody. Uh, you know, it's it's very much about getting out of hierarchical thinking um, and understanding that, like, I know more than you do but about some things, but you know more than I do about other things. So uh, that, that everybody has something to contribute uh, and that we want to in my version of it that you're freely choosing to do the right thing in the interest of the group but it's a choice right and that you can respect everybody even though you don't agree with them and that you know people are entitled to pursue their lives it only becomes problematic when they start to impose their beliefs on people who don't agree with them so there's a there's a lot about freedom uh, there's a lot about collaboration uh, there's a lot about creativity it's basically it's essentially based on a positive belief in human beings so that's crazy like I, I never knew that I never thought of that I've been taught my belief is something different yep. and it sounds like anarchy had a certain um, peak you know back in history like where, where is it today like what's going on with, with well, them I don't know I mean there's some stuff today that's you know there's just like there's Catholics of all ranges and Jews of all ranges and Republicans of all ranges there's anarchists of all ranges is there like an anarchist club or church you guys hang out at well I'm an introvert so I don't like hanging out with groups anyway but uh, you know there's all sorts of things there's some very interesting work there's a guy named Karn Ross C-A-R-N-E Ross he was a British diplomat who left resigned from the Foreign Service and started to really feel like anarchism was the answer that everybody was looking for. Uh, and he's he has a website called Independent Diplomat, and he has a couple book uh, book out that's quite good. The name will come back to me in a minute. Uh, actually, in, Kurdis, in Kurdistan, uh, there's a lot of very interesting uh, Rojava, is, I think, I don't know the pronunciation for sure, but uh, is the region of Kurdish settlement in that Syria, Iraq area. And shockingly, they're doing some really interesting 
progressive, non-hierarchical, collaborative, consensus-based things in that community, elevating women uh, to much more to much higher roles or more out front roles in leadership, et cetera, et cetera. So it's stuff that nobody knows about, but it's, it's kind of happening. Um, one of the interesting anarchists for me was a guy named Gustav Landauer, who was a German Jewish pacifist. I never read his stuff when I was in school because it was in German and it wasn't translated until about 15, 12 years ago. But uh, he wrote something that blew my mind of you know over the last 10 years that really changed my whole thing and what he said is that uh, essentially I'm paraphrasing but what he said is that trying to defeat the state or destroy the state is a mistake because you're locked in a negative relationship and he, he said it's not that the people are stuck in the state it's that the state is stuck in the people and he said that the answer is to stop fighting against that and to go and create free communities where people can think freely and treat each other with dignity and respect and get out of that ecosystem, so to speak, because it's poison. And I, when I read that, I was like, oh, my God, that's what we're doing at Zingerman. I'm not trying to get rid of government. Somebody's got to create all that stuff, whatever. I'm not asking for anything from the government. I'm not trying to get rid of it. I'm not down on government, whatever. But meanwhile, our job is to create a healthy community and treat everybody with dignity. And so the newest bus person that we hired or the newest barista at the coffee company is as important as I am. You know, and, and to start to create an organization that systemically teaches people to take ownership of their lives, to participate in running the organization through open book management and stuff like that. And it treats everybody like a leader and tries to help them be themselves, right? So if you're doing that, then positive things tend to happen and the rest of the world could do what it's going to do. I mean, and I, I know we're in our bubble here, <laughs> but it's a nice bubble and we've been working hard to make it. And you know, by teaching our work through the books or through Zinc Train or just from people working here and then going somewhere else and taking the ideas with them, it starts to slowly spread. And, you know, it's not the whole country, but it's the, that's such a big project. Yeah, well, and as you were talking and describing anarchy, I was like, oh, my God, that's, that's Zingerman's. That's like, and, then you, and then you connected the dots for us, but uh, I think we're there. Why don't you just tell me a little bit about uh, Zingerman's community business, like, yeah. how, like how this all works? Yeah, so, well, it works imperfectly. Paul always likes to say, and I think he's right, we have the same problems everybody else does. We just have different ways of dealing with them. So, you know, it's still there's people are mad at each other and people don't honor their commitments and people still leave with no notice and, you know, customers still get upset and financials aren't always good and you know all that so it's, it's not nirvana but I, I while I was working on all this stuff about the metaphorical ecosystem and everything I realized the obvious which is nature is also imperfect so actually the perfectionism that I was raised with is actually the drive to achieve the unnatural I think we're doomed so understanding that imperfection is normal it's natural the key in an ecosystem is not to get rid of all problems it's to have a predominant presence of positive stuff so that the problems are minimized and that the positive outweighs it right so there's no organization where everyone's happy every day it's impossible what you can have is a culture and a setting where more people by far are more engaged and more interested in trying to do the right thing so when one of us and happens to all of us starts to slide down the ecosystem can help bring them back and there's systemic ways to help bring them back so 
with all that said, uh, I don't know what we got, 11 businesses, 12, I don't know, it depends how you count. Uh, everything is, our vision is that they're all here in the Ann Arbor area. I uh, have strong and ever stronger, actually, beliefs about doing business in the community in which you're present. I think something gets lost in the spirit when you start to open wherever. Not that the other places are bad, it's just you're not of that place and you're not there. And then we only open each business once because I really like unique things. And so I never want from get from the get go. I never wanted like seven Zingerman's delis. It just seems boring and uninteresting. And I always wanted like this one amazing one that people would come from across the country to go check out uh, because that's what's special to me. So today we have uh, the deli, of course, which has been expanded three times. Uh, Zing Train, I already mentioned, is our little training business. We have a bakehouse. We have the creamery uh, where we make fresh cream cheese and other fresh cheeses and gelato. We have a coffee company where we're sitting now. We have a little candy business. We make handmade candy bars. Mail order business is an important piece of the organization. We ship food all over the country. Uh, Cornman Farms is, uh, we have an 1834 farmhouse and 1837 barn that we renovated completely and we do weddings and events sure there's one tonight if you want to go out there uh and zimmerman's roadhouse which is where i'm going to go next and work the floor is a sit-down restaurant that's all regional american food and then miss kim uh, is a little korean restaurant that we opened 18 months ago and then our newest formal business is uh, our food tours which we've actually been doing for about 20 years but uh, we only do a business when there's managing partner partners in it and so uh, Christy Brayblack, who's been working here, I think, 14 or 15 years just on other things, but got really into the tours about two years ago. And so she, we just formally approved her in August as a new partner. So now it's Zingerman's Food Tours is its own business. So all told, I don't know, we'll do like $63 million in sales this year. And we have about 700 employees. And then we hire about 300 more, 330 more at the holidays. And I want to point out that Ari is a very hands-on business owner. I mean, he's here working the floor. He has every day he sits, I think, here at the coffee shop, right? And, and move around. moves around and has his mobile mobile office, which is the bag office. bag full of uh, ramblings. Day, I've been at the roadhouse. I've been at the deli. And I've been out here. But, but the point being very hands-on and very involved in the businesses. And, you know, I don't even know where I saw it. But at one point I saw this. And I don't know if you've seen it. This... Um, this drawing from Disney where he drew all his like inter- enterprises and how the businesses interconnect and everything. Huh. I'll share that with you. It's really interesting. Yeah. And uh, oh, as you were talking, that's just what struck struck me was like this interconnectedness in the in the yeah. in the different well, this businesses. Is, this is part of the the using this metaphor of the ecosystem. So in nature, everything's impacting everything else. Uh, in hierarchy, which is one of the things anarchism is trying to get rid of, it's it's the opposite. So in a hierarchically organized organization, the barista here would almost be not allowed to talk to the one at the roadhouse. Here we're trying to get them to talk to each other. So it's not that the people, in quotes, at the top have nothing to offer. It's just that when you make everything go up and back down again, you're missing a lot of information getting lost. I mean, it's So the idea is to connect as much as possible, just like what you're saying. Well, so let's just go back to the beginning. We always like to capture kind of that defining moment. And you and Paul, you're hanging out. You're studying Russian anarchists. You're hanging out. And well, like, I was already working in the restaurant. You're already working in the restaurants. Okay, thanks. Thanks for correcting the the history so, yeah, there. There's but a lot of wrong stories like that. We 
went to college together and in our dorm room dreamed up the idea of the deli and it's like no we didn't go to college together we didn't live together when we opened the deli he had already worked in restaurants like seven or eight years in food and i had worked it for four so all the people think it's the idea but you still need to know how to like clean a grease trap and you know clean the grill and do scheduling and all the sort of unglamorous stuff that you know as every industry has its equivalent so, so tell me about that take me back to that time when when you and paul were together and and like you said let's we're going to do a deli well i had given notice uh so i had worked for that group for about four years they're still here in town they have i don't know 10 12 restaurants uh there's certainly not bad people they're nice but they just you know i could just i was sort of less and less enthused about the work and i could sense more and more that where they wanted to head they didn't have a vision but written but i mean where they wanted to go was not where i wanted to go so i just finally decided you know it's time to get out of here so i gave two months notice i didn't know what i was going to do next paul had left about two years before that and had opened monahan seafood market here in town which is actually still one of the best fish markets in the country which is a belief that's hard to grasp for people on the coast but you with refrigeration we can actually have which we got about 12 14 years ago i think we got electricity uh, in the Midwest. So uh, anyway, he and I had stayed friends and we would talk off and on. And in Detroit, where he grew up, you could get good deli food. And in Chicago, you could get it, but you couldn't get it here. And I don't, he didn't really know I had even given notice, but he called me like two, three days later. And he's like, there's this little building coming open near the fish market. Let's go check it out. And, you know, we went from conversation to opening in four and a half months. Which to me is mind blowing because, like, literally, when they do the doodle polls to do a schedule, scheduling for a meeting, it could be four months before you actually get everybody in the room. But somehow we like had the discussion, decided to do it, wrote the business plan, borrowed twenty thousand dollars as a second mortgage on his house, uh, renovated the space, ordered the initial inventory, made the menu, tested the recipes, and got open by March fifteenth of nineteen eighty two. And uh, the people close to you, what did they say? Did they say good luck? Did they say you're crazy? Well, the people, well, I don't know. The people really close to us were supportive. But the people in general, the general wisdom was we would fail. Uh, you know, which is not ill-founded belief. I mean, the restaurant business is not easy. It's still not easy. I don't remember the number, but like 80 or 90% of food businesses go under in a year. Ann Arbor had a dozen delis close in the over the previous 10 or 15 years. The neighborhood was a bad neighborhood, everybody said. There's still no parking to this day. Not only that, today, actually, for the last three months, they have the entire street dug up renovating, so you can't even get to the deli, and there's still a line out the door. So anyway, yeah, people thought we would fail. I've come to believe that that's actually true of any meaningful work. Uh, in part three of the book on managing ourselves is an essay on creativity, which is a quote from Arthur C. Clarke, the science fiction writer, who said something along the lines of all great ideas or all revolutionary ideas go through three stages. Stage one, completely impractical, it will never work. Stage two, well, it might be possible, but it's not very practical. Stage three, I was behind it from the beginning. And I, I think that's true of social change. I think it's true of music. I, I think it's like the Pogo thing, find the parade and run to the front of it. So. You know, it's. I think that's 
that same thing has been repeated with almost everything meaningful that we've ever done. Mostly people don't like it in the beginning. Later, they knew from day one we were going to be a success. Were you ever uh, scared or at risk of not, not making it? Was there a time where you I'm thought scared that? scared every day. I'm still scared now. I mean, not like scared panicking, but I mean, I'm always fearful. Yeah, because of what? you're never done. I mean, it's, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's industries where like the profit margin. So like, I don't know if Google worries about going out of business or not. I mean, I have no idea. But in the food business, the margins are not that big. It's, you know, you could you could work just as hard and lose money and you could work just as hard and make money because the to go from making two or three percent to losing two or three percent. It's not that easy to, you know, you can't, like what's 3% of a corned beef sandwich like that, right? You won't even know. So, no, I always, I'm always concerned. It's not sculpture. Yeah, you know, and it's an ecosystem. And, you know, whatever, pick your metaphor. But in farming, I mean, you got to go start over again. I mean, it doesn't matter how great last year's harvest was. And, yeah, it's true. I mean, if you build up the soil, the odds get better that you'll do better. But you could still completely screw it up and you could still have a tornado or a hurricane could come in if you live in North Carolina or, you know, pest invasion or like problems that are way extreme and bad things can happen. I mean, we just don't know. Yeah. And then, you know, when I was here uh, many years ago, Zingerman's was certainly popular, but was not the only game in town. A lot of choices for pastrami and corned beef. Still true now. So like, why, why do you think people come to Zingerman's? And because at the end of the day, it's a sandwich, right? And I'm sure it's a great sandwich and I know it's delivered with quality. And I think it's a lot of things. I mean, our mission statement, which we wrote in 91, and there's an essay in part one of the book on our process for doing that, but it's about bringing people a great experience. So I think that really is accurate. Uh, so the food and the drink are part of the experience, but it's also the energy of the staff. I, I mean, I think, you know, different people come for different reasons, obviously, but if the product's not great, people aren't coming. If the service isn't great, people aren't coming. And I think somewhat intangibly to most, like I can talk about it more tangibly, but to most of the world, it's intangible. And that's the energy that they experience when they come in, which is basically the emotion that they feel when they're present in your business. That could be online or on the phone too. Uh, you know, and people want to feel good, like, right? Duh. So, if they go into a place and they feel treated like they're treated poorly, they're not happy and they're not going to come back. And, you know, we have those problems too. I mean, the benefit we have from doing what we do is a lot of them will tell us and then we have systems and teaching and how to handle it so that we can get them back. And so I got here early and I got to go over to the creamery, which is, you know, they have uh, gelato there. They have, they have cheese and they have these great toasty grilled cheese sandwiches that are toasty pimento and cheese. And it was awesome. And it was wrapped in this um, piece of paper. And two things I want to ask you about, Ari. One is, you know, where, where was the genesis for this really funky kind of what's become your trademark illustrative style? But also, like I noticed and it was weird. It was like almost like it called to me. Like there was this section in, in, in one of these. And, and I don't know if it's right here, but it basically said food should be fun yeah and you know and i think that's kind of one of the things you're alluding to right there i mean first i'd like to hear about like the the stylistic so uh in part one of the book there's an essay called 12 natural laws of business which basically it's like gravity they just are Uh, and i think successful businesses or organizations and or people as individuals are basically in harmony with those whether they know what they are or not uh, one of them is that our strengths lead to our weaknesses and vice versa. So I used to think they were like antithetically opposed to each other. 
but then it sort of dawned on me that like whatever you're really good at leads to what you're not good at in the marketplace. It's true as an individual. Uh, so people who have a million ideas frequently have a hard time finishing. People who are really good at finishing hide their ideas even from themselves because they're so worried about finishing the other ones. Uh, you know, our strength in the marketplace is really great artisan food made by hand. What's the weakness? It costs a lot of money. There's no way around it. McDonald's, gotta love them, very cheap. What's the problem? Doesn't taste that good. You know, and it's not one's evil and one's good. It's just you can't do, you can't have like an artisan hamburger from pasture raised beef, like at the roadhouse, dry aged, ground fresh every day, hand patted, and cooked over oak cheap unless you're independently wealthy and you're trying to lose your money so anyway uh one of our weaknesses when we opened was we had no money <laughs> so we adapted to that by having people make stuff by hand because that was all we could afford there were if there were computers but they were like a block long and you didn't have one in your house or your office so uh so this just came out of you know when it was slow people would start making signs and uh, that handwriting style is the handwriting of Steve Wallach Muno, who worked for us early on and since went on to do many other things. But other people learn his handwriting, uh, and it is actually a font on the computer now. But all the artists that work here will be able to tell you which were the hand-done ones and which were the computer. So the computer generator is great, like for me, because I'm not able to do it. But for really good work, it's all hand-lettered still. Do you know the name of that font? Yeah, it's called Muno Bold. <laughs> after Steve Wallagmino. That's so awesome. It's so awesome. That's really cool. And then tell me a little bit about that thing. I mean, like I said, it just kind of, yeah, it just kind of caught me. Like well, almost like our a- values, it's in our vision. Uh, life is short. Uh, you know, I, I think in hindsight, it, it fits with the anarchist stuff. I didn't think about it that way when we started, but you know, it's just food. I mean, so I, I you know, neither Paul nor I, uh, I don't think is ever like really, of the belief that you're a better person because you eat our food. I mean, we're, we're not, in, I, I feel strongly that it enriches my life and that it tastes fabulous and it makes my day much better when I eat good food or this coffee actually is excellent right now from Guatemala. But it's not like your life's terrible just because you drank a cup of bad coffee. But the point was that it's not this super serious thing to like drill down on people for eating or not eating a particular thing it's the point is to enjoy life and uh that little things like two ounces of a great cheese or that sandwich that you just ate brighten your day right and that you know without question there's people in society who have no means who have no access who are trying to overcome enormous social obstacles so i get it that there's people you know in the wider ecosystem that don't have access and that's a different issue but the point is just to try to invite anybody who can come in and even if they just want to taste and they don't even have money to buy some we're always going to give them a taste and that you know for two ounces of a great cheese like the parmigiano reggiano that we're working on this big project for the last two years which is over in the creamery like a one ounce piece of that which you know costs you a couple bucks but whatever the queen of england isn't going to get anything better in fact she's probably going to get worse because they didn't select it for her. So really, you could be in high school and you could be buying one ounce of an amazing cheese and it's a super cool experience. So it doesn't make you better, but it makes you feel better. Yeah, and if it doesn't make you feel better, we give you your money back and 
there's a lot of other places, like you said, to get food. And I don't be, I totally get it. I mean, it's, you know, you know, we all become accustomed to what we do in our lives. And so I didn't grow up with any of this food. I grew up on crap macaroni and cheese and American singles. But, you know, so if you're used to that, it's not like eating American singles bothers you. It's fine. It's only once you actually taste something better that then you realize contextually there it wasn't so great, right? So, you know, and that's true of everything. I mean, if you, like, I don't, I barely watch TV anymore at all. So, I don't know, we have like a 15-year-old TV that's probably horrible, but I don't care. And I don't even look at, you know, but if somebody is used to like some super high-tech 3D you know, whatever, they would look at what we have at our house and go like, I can't even believe you look at that anymore. But I don't know, it seems fine. You know, so it's really more what we're used to and and this is it's beliefs, right? So as you encounter other beliefs or other experiences, sometimes it changes your beliefs. So we that's why we give a sample of anything people ask, because we want them to try it and then see whether they like it, not spend a lot of money for something they get home and decide they don't like. Right, so we have all the olive oils open, the vinegars open, we get people tasted cheese at the roadhouse, we sample in the restaurant, which is very unusual. But the point is to let people try it and decide for themselves, because I mean, it could be fabulous, but they just don't like it. If someone once said to me, you can't uh, believe until you experience, and that's what just kind of resonated yeah. you know, for me. I think that's true of most things in life. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, it's true of jobs too. I mean, you know, so most people, this is a lot of what I write about in the books, but I mean, much of the country, much of the world has only had very negative experiences or at least neutral, at best neutral experiences of what work is. And so they have very negative beliefs about work. And consequently, they're trying to, you know, do as little as possible. But if you have a really positive experience of work, then you realize it's, it's a life, it's your life, right? So, there's nothing in life that is great that you don't work at. I mean, I don't care if it's when you go fishing on your day off or your relationship at home or raising a kid or writing poetry or whatever. I mean, it's work, you know, and that work's not bad. What's bad is working at something you don't believe in is bad. But working hard at something you believe in is rewarding and fun. So here we are, like... You're doing 63 million in revenue this year. You've, you've, you've accomplished a lot. Like, what's the future vision look like for you going well, forward? We're actually working on the next vision, uh, which is not a quick process because we work collaboratively and we use consensus at the partner level. So it's we're probably about six months into an 18 month process to write a 2030 vision. So I don't know. I mean, I know what I want, but I'm not. What's that? Exciting. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter yet because there's. There's 20 other people that are part of the conversation. So, I mean, it matters what I want, but we got to get to agreement on it. And, and that's something you've just always been known for is management by consensus, which, again, is that back to anarchy? Well, we don't use consensus for everything, and I wouldn't have said it was part of anarchism because I wouldn't have thought of it. But in hindsight, yes, it is very uh, compatible with it. We use consensus at the partner level. Uh, we use uh, consultative decision-making for most things which means you're getting other people's input, even if you're making the decision. Um, but yeah, in hindsight, I wouldn't, I didn't do it for that reason, but yes, it is very compatible. I think more interestingly actually is that pretty much all our meetings are open. So anybody who works here and wants to go to somebody else's meeting could go. How does that work? They sit down and just look in the, like the Google calendar or the outlook and yeah. you can see that. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't mean like you and I are meeting to discuss some issue, but I mean, you know, there's a coffee huddle on Tuesdays at 10 o'clock. If you work at the roadhouse and you want to go, you go. How often does that kind of cross-pollination take place? Less often than I'd like, but mo- way more often than most places. Yeah. That's, that's just a fascinating well, idea. And, the, and because I, like, I write a lot about free choice, which also in hindsight goes back to the anarchist stuff, but when you choose not to go, it's wholly different than when you're not allowed to go. So free choice is huge. Uh, and I, I mean, like in a nutshell, I realized last year, like the only major difference between running a marathon and a forced march is choice. Yeah. And I think a lot of business owners, a lot of business owners would be scared to, to open right. up like that. But, but well, like what, A, what are you hiding? B, the employees are making, to your version of your work, they're making up really creative stories about what you're doing and how much money you have, which are usually far off the mark. And they're as smart as we are. In fact, they might be smarter. They certainly know more. They know a lot of things we don't know. And we're, we're basically, I, I would argue pretty vociferously that most organizations are wasting 90% of the intellectual capital they're paying for. Because people are smart and they have input and they, they want to care, but they're being excluded. So then they just sort of shut down and do as little as they have to to get by. And they remain creative and intelligent. They just use it for their band out of work or their church group or their, you know, whatever, water volleyball team or whatever they're on. I mean, or their kid, you know, which are all cool things too. But, you know, one of the the amazing things about energy is that human energy is generative. It can be generative. It's not a limited resource. So if you are totally into your kids it doesn't mean you can't be into work in fact it actually works better when you're into both right because if people go home from work feeling angry and frustrated and drained out emotionally and unhappy it has very negative even for the best parent it still has negative impact on the relationship with their kid conversely if they feel good about themselves at work and here where they're learning you know imperfect as we are they're learning about visioning it's a life skill. They're learning about energy management. It's a life skill. They're learning about service. It's a life skill. So now you learn all that. You get paid to learn it at work, and then you put it to work at home, and you teach it to your kids. It's all going. It creates a virtuous cycle, and then you feel better at home wherever it starts than you do better at work. So if the 20-year-old Ari ran into you today, what, what would he say? Could he believe all this? Well, I'm not going to curse on your podcast <laughs> like what the I mean I yeah I don't I mean in hindsight it's it all fits together but that's true with history always it's just I mean I didn't think I'd live to be 30 to be honest with you so why is that I don't know because I, when I was 18 <laughs> you're doing a lot of things you're not supposed to do and I didn't have any sense of where I was going and I you know, I don't mean like I was like completely angst ridden and, you know, depressed, but I wasn't, I didn't have some life dream I was going after. And I don't know, it just seemed like older people didn't have it together. So would you say you're now living that life dream? Well, I'm alive. You mean, so I didn't die at 30. Well, that's a first, that's a start. Yeah. Well, I mean, I learned a lot. I mean, I, it's, it's, that's the, the third book is on self-management. I mean, it's a lot of the stuff that I learned, which is, you know, building on some of the good things I learned as a kid and then unlearning a lot of the things that I learned, which 
there was no malice, but that I learned that weren't that helpful. And then learning a lot of new things that helped make some good happen. And, you know, life is short and every day we get the chance to make it a good day. And nothing's given to us, you know, except the chance to go out there tomorrow if we're lucky and work at it again. You're such a prolific writer. You, you've you've kind of chronicled all these life lessons in books. Like, like, what's your creative process, and what does like writing mean to you? Like, how does that fit into your life? Well, I never intended to be a writer either. Well, writing it turns out is actually a really good way of learning. So a lot of times, like I think I know what I'm going to say, but it comes out different, or I realize stuff while I'm writing is very common. Uh, so it's actually the, the process of doing the writing is actually where a lot of the insight comes from. So it's, I think I used to think, and I think much of the world thinks that you have the idea and then you write it down. But I think it's equally true that you write and then the ideas come to you while you're doing the writing. Uh, but it's good for me because it pushes me to get what's in my head out into teachable, repeatable formats that other people can choose to use or not use as they so desire uh so i just try to write when i can i mean it's you know it's not like i got all day to sit at home and write <laughs> but i'm working now uh hopefully it'll be out and when's this podcast gonna go up uh probably in uh november of 2018 hopefully when this goes up this little pamphlet will be out so we do pamphlets which are over there which are uh, single essays pulled from the books because the books are written so you can read one essay at a time you don't have to read the whole book if you don't want to uh, but this is the epilogue of the most recent book on beliefs uh, with some additional stuff so the epilogue of it is one thing I realized while I was writing is you know going back to that belief cycle right so if a if your life is based around a self-fulfilling cycle b if what we believe changes what we perceive then if we all believed we were artists we would see a lot more <laughs> because if you hang out with a visual artist they notice colors they notice textures and if you hang with a musician they're going to hear the sounds differently right so uh if you start to think of yourself as an artist i realized then you would be way more mindful about what you did right and then you realize your life is art and your business is art, and then you pay more attention and you're much more caring in where you place things, whether that's a comment or an eye roll or not an eye roll. Uh, and you start to understand that the little things matter because, you know, as a non-artist going to the museum, I look at the painting for two minutes and I'm done. Right? <laughs> but if you go as an artist, you like notice all the nuances of the color and the texture, and it's actually way more rewarding than me going, how much longer do we have to be here? And you start to realize that the background is equally critical to the painting as what's in the center, because without the background, there's no center. So the work of the newest person on the counter is as important as my work, because without them, I'm nothing. And, you know, so so anyway, uh, I took that little epilogue and then I added a lot more thoughts because I've given it a lot more thought in an interview that's going in there. And uh, one of the key tenets or beliefs of anarchism is that the means that you use to do something need to be congruent with the ends that you're trying to achieve. So that's been very helpful because then the more you can do it now, 
the odds go up that you'll get to where you want to go later. So anyway, with this, uh, we do all our own, the books here, and we do all the design and everything. So we've been working on designing this one, and I really wanted it to be, to fit with the other pamphlets, but to look a little more special because of the content, right? So we've been working with this guy, Mike Coughlin in Minneapolis, who's a letterpress printer and an anarchist. He's probably, I don't know, he's older than me. Uh, super nice guy, but it's, you know we've been going back and forth trying to do this design, and I think we got it down yesterday. So I'm excited. So it's, he's going to letter press the cover, and then we'll do the rest here. I'm excited too. I can't wait to, to get a copy. So, what's one of your favorite stories? Uh, I don't want to say a favorite because I get hem hem hawed, and it can be a, yeah. a film, it can be a movie. A well, oh well, all these things I'm telling you are stories. Uh, I think life is stories uh, to your point of your work I mean it's I don't know there's a million of them like I write about food this is the business conversation but I write about the food and all of that too uh, I don't know what's a good story the story of how I met my girlfriend uh, I had a very good friend named Daphne Zeppos uh, who worked with cheese a lot she was from Greece but lived here as an adult I wrote about her in the epilogue of the third book she was great. We had a really good friendship. And uh, I guess it's eight years ago, she she had this like long-standing thing. She wanted to buy this little thing in San Francisco that's called the Cheese School of San Francisco. And this woman had started it. And she wanted to, Daphne wanted to buy it from her. So actually, this month, that year, she bought it in September of that year. And so in January, I was out there for the fancy food show. And I was like, oh, you know, I really, I better go to a class at Daphne's little, you know, it's a little tiny, you know, 20-seat training room right so i'm like i better go and it's sunday night the first night of the food show and it's a long day and you know whatever so i'm like all right i'm gonna go so i get there like 10 minutes late it's a class on dutch cheese uh taught by betty uh from la Mouze, which is an amazing cheese shop in the netherlands anyway i get there and tammy is one of the people in the class and that's how we met uh and uh, we went out for coffee, which turned it, it became bad wine, not coffee. But uh, after that, and talked for like three hours. Three months later, Daphne was diagnosed with lung cancer uh, and died three months after that. So it's a story like many stories that are good stories, which is tragedy with joy, uh, all overlaid together, and all in one story. Well, that's a great story. I think we'll end there. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. It, was, it was great. And that is Ari Weinsweig, founder of Zingerman's in Ann Arbor, Michigan, on location at Zingerman's Coffee Company. If you like today's show, please let us know by dropping an email to podcast at wildstory.com. Also, if you want to help this show continue, I do need your help, and it won't cost you a dime. But if you could download, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on iTunes, that helps the show tremendously and allows us to continue producing the show free of charge. That's it. I'm Mark Gutman, and this is the Baby Got Backstory podcast. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. Baby got backstory. You'll also find free story downloads and resources to help you integrate the power of story into your business. 